Let me pray for us before we get started. Heavenly Father, um, today uh, we, we come to you, we are humbled by your word, by the beauty, by the poetry, uh, all the things about it, God, um, by the gift that it is. But more than anything, Lord, um, we thank you that you um, are who you are. And when we break away all the things that we complicate your truth with, it is simple. I heard that word today, God, and it's true. You are simple. It is so simple. You loved us so much you sent your son. And so, God, will you, will you help us today as we walk through these two chapters? Will you help us um, remove the things that we complicate this with and help us get down to the simple truth of who you are and who your son is, Lord? Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Um, be in this room. Help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, the word simple. My friend was praying with me back there, and she said that over and over, and I thought, you know, after reading the first two chapters of Hebrews, that's not exactly the first word that comes to my mind. How about y'all? You guys got it all figured out? Good, I hope so. So we're just going to watch a video and chill and just say, you know. It, uh, it can get complicated, right? It can get a little bogged down sometimes. And sometimes it can feel so confusing. But really, I do believe that with everything in me, that it is so simple, that this gospel is so simple. And so that's my hope today, that when we walk out of here, that we can see things a little more clearly and a little less complication, a little less stuff that we put on top and that we let the enemy tell us that we can't understand, okay? So let's uh, open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I'm going to ask you in advance, because I'm a recovering people pleaser. Those of you who know me, I'm working through it. I'm doing really good. Um, you might have questions. Does anybody have any questions about Hebrews 1 and 2? No? We're good? Okay, good. A couple. Here's the deal, guys. Um, I'm not going to hit every I'm not going to answer every question. I'm not going to hit everything because I promise you there, I have a lot of questions too. But here's what I want you to remember is um, what I said at the beginning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is simple and a lot of times we allow things to bog it down. Amen. And so today we're going to attempt to get as much, squeeze as much out of these first two chapters as we can as God would have us. And then we're going to probably leave here dwelling in a little bit of the what? I don't know, right? Welcome. If you're new, welcome. That's welcome to Bible study. We do that a lot. There's a lot of times we got to kind of dwell in the I don't know, and we've got to remember this, that no time this side of heaven, no time this side of heaven is it all going to make perfect sense, right? Because if it did, we, we didn't need a God, did we? If we could figure it all out. So trust that the I don't know sometimes is maybe just going to take us down this path that later on we get to know more hints and more little clues that lead us to a God who knows it all. Okay? With that introduction, let's take a look at first and se- the Hebrew, first sixth chapter of Hebrews. So today when I was thinking about breaking it down, I, I could have, you know, it took me a while because I could have outlined it a million different ways, right? Because there was so much there. But I broke it down into three things and I thought um, with your homework and the discussion you had, hopefully this is just going to continue to go right along with that and weave some truth for you. So there's three things we're going to hit today in our time. We're going to talk about how the sun alone is better. 
right? You're going to hear that word a lot. Have you figured that out yet? That word better. That's the theme. Jesus alone is better. So today, the Hebrews um, author hits us like in the first four verses, like smack in the face with some truth about Jesus. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about a challenge. He puts a warning. You know, there's five warnings issued in the book of Hebrews, and the very first one comes in the first few verses of chapter two. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to hang there for a little while. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the business of salvation, right? That last part where, where we see the author of Hebrews kind of describe how, how Jesus was lower than the angels, and all of us went, what? What? Right? We were all going, I don't even understand. We're going to go over that a little bit. The business of salvation and what that salvation looks like through the person of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the first 14 verses of chapter 1. And here's the thing. I'm not going to read every one of them because you've all did your homework, right? Yeah, thank you. This side of the room, dude. I'm going to read a couple of verses. We're going to talk about it a little bit. And we're going to skip over a couple of things because I am going to trust that you did spend some time in this chapter Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the first three verses of Hebrews. So follow along. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It goes like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. I love this part. He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to stop right there. Three verses packed full of so much stuff we could spend two hours talking about it, right? For the sake of time, because I know a lot of you are hungry and you have children that might be hungry, I, we're going to hit some, some top little key points and then we're going to move right on through. There's some things I want you to think about when you hear those first three verses, okay? And I know for you, um, if you're like me, some of them were questions. Like, I don't really understand. Like, these last days? What does that mean? Is that telling me something? We're going to take a look at that. So the first thing I want you to note, note this when you look at those first three verses, is this, that, that if you take this scripture and it says long ago at many times in many ways, God did what? Spoke. God spoke. And if you keep moving down, you skip some of those important words down to verse 2. It says, but in these last days, he what? Has spoken. Think about the first three verses for a second. Take away all that stuff, like I said, that complicates things. And I want you to hear, if you hear nothing, I want you to hear this. This, the author of this letter starts the letter with the most important thing he wants his readers to hear. He wants the hearers to understand. And it is this, God has spoken God has spoken. And then we go into the details of how and when and why and all that stuff. But do you hear that? Do you hear the importance of it? Did you miss it when you went through? God has spoken. He wants us to understand that even if we shut the letter and don't read the rest of it. God has spoken. And he goes on. He talks about two different time periods, doesn't he? We talked a little bit about that in our homework. He talks about in the first verse, he says, long ago. And then he goes on and says, long ago at many times and in many ways to our fathers by the prophets. We'll talk about that in a minute. And verse 2, but in these last days, 
he has spoken. It was kind of a weird question, right? Like even in our leader meeting, we had all sorts of different ideas. Did you guys have that in your group too, what that meant? It's just not real clear, but let me challenge you with something here. When you're thinking about the author of Hebrews and what he's trying to tell those people, remember the three different groups that he's talking to? They're all Hebrews. They all have a Hebrew background. They all have this background of all this Jewish tradition, right? And all these things. So, but there are three different groups. One group, they're Hebrew Christians. They have accepted Jesus as their salvation. They recognize that he's the Messiah they've been waiting for. And they understand that. And then there was the other group, right? That they were the Hebrews. They were not Christians yet. But intellectually, they're buying into this Jesus thing. So I thought about that as there's a lot of people that come to church like that. There may be a lot of people in this room right now that feel that way. I get it. I, I like this Jesus thing, but I'm not fully there, okay? And then the third group were the Hebrews. That j- that's all they were. They were just Hebrews. They, they practiced possibly. They had a history, a heritage of this Jewish tradition, but they were not Christians, Okay, they were still practicing that Jewish tradition. So that's who he's talking to. He says that, and so he's, he's recognizing the fact that these people with this Hebrew past know their Old Testament, don't they? They don't call it that because that's all they had at the time, right? But to us, it's the Old Testament. So he's recognizing that they look to the prophets and the priests of old as, as, as message from God. So he references that in the, very, in the very first two words. He says, long ago. Because immediately they're like, oh, okay, I'm in. So he says, long ago. But then he talks about it these last days. You know, um, most scholars believe that when he says in these last days, he's talking about from the time that Jesus put on flesh and came and walked among this earth till when this world is over. That's in these last days. Okay, there's been some, some people think maybe it's after Jesus died, but let me just challenge you with thinking this way. We're going to talk a lot in this Bible study about old covenant, new covenant. And so the minute Jesus took on the form of a man and moved into the neighborhood, that's the new covenant. And so the long ago days are talking about that old covenant. And that's what most of these readers understand. And they're like, okay, gotcha. But then when he moves into this new thing, they're like, wait, what? Which brings us to where he goes next. One thing I want you to note, when you hear the words um, prophets and priests, how many have heard those words before? Do y'all ever figured it? Yeah, I I just do this to make sure y'all are awake sometimes. I mean, come on. But I, I found a real interesting way to define those two because you'll hear a lot of references to those, okay, as we go through Hebrews. And I want you to hear it like this. Prophets speak to man for God. Okay, they, they are God's mouthpiece, prophets. Okay, priests, however, are different. They speak to God on behalf of man. They take man's problems to God. Okay, so there's two different people we're talking about when you hear these references to prophets and priests. And I just want, that's, that was bonus information. You got that for free. You're welcome. But he's referring back to these prophets of long ago. And so these Hebrews understand all that, okay? But another thing I want you to think about when you hear these first three verses is that um, these Hebrews, these people, they're looking for fulfillment to Old Testament promises. They're looking for fulfillment to Old Testament promises. You know what that's called in fancy Bible people words? 
I just learned this too. It's called a progressive revelation. A progressive revelation. And that is exactly what it sounds like. It's this. It's that God didn't unfold the whole plan on day one of creation, did he? No. He is unfolding it little by little. Why? We don't know. We're not God. Okay? Rest in that. Can you rest in the fact that you're not God? Look at each other and say, you're not God. Thank you. We have got to clear that up, guys. We are terrible at being God, just to be clear. But the progressive revelation, that idea of it, that was how um, the author of Hebrews is really going to hit these folks because he's going to explain to them that there's these promises that you've been looking for, and now Jesus is the satisfaction of those promises. He's the satisfaction, okay? So God has spoken long ago these days, prophets looking for fulfillment, and then he moves into the coolest part. We are still in chapter one, guys, and he moves into something super cool. Seven titles he gives Jesus. Seven titles he gives. Character traits of who Jesus is. Remember, these audiences, these Hebrews, he doesn't know where they stand. I look at you right now, I don't know where you are with Jesus Christ. I don't. And so this Hebrews author is like, I'm going to get this out there right away. We're going to make sure everybody understands. And that's what we're doing. We're going to understand who Jesus Christ is right now at the very beginning before we get into any of that angel stuff. Okay? So relax. We're getting there. Seven things that Jesus Christ is. And I'm going to move quickly because we've got a lot to cover. Seven things. He starts talking about these things in these first three verses. Oh, wait, did I jump in? No, okay, my bad. First three verses, he says that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Number one, that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. Jot this down on the side if you want to go check it out. In Colossians 1.16, that verse reminds us that all was created by him and all was created for him. He is the heir of all things. Not just the creator of all things, but also the heir of all things. The second is just that. He is the creator. Now, if you study Genesis with us, you'll remember that there was a lot of this let us talk. We were always like, who's the us? God, didn't you get this stuff done by yourself? It's confusing sometimes. But God is so big and so great and so complete that he is three in one. And the us he's talking about was the sun was there with him at creation. Day one, guys, the sun was there. The Holy Spirit was there too. Three in one. So he is heir. He is creator. And the, set, the third thing, excuse me, is that he is the radiant glory of God. I found this interesting when I looked through it. Because remember, this was originally written in the Greek. And so the Greek translation for that word radiance is not what I would immediately think. You know, it's not reflection. The word reflection. Isn't that kind of like Jesus reflects God. He does not reflect God. He is God. Amen? He is the radiance. We have the sun, and you think about the radiance as the beams that shine out. He's the way that we understand who God is. Okay? He is not a reflection. He is the radiance. And number four, he is the exact imprint an exact representation. My Bible says exact. I don't know how yours translates it, but I want you to know this, that that word in the Greek is stamped. 
That's what that word means. And a lot of you may, you may kind of know um, what that is referring to, but in the time of Caesar, he had um, this limestone seal and every single thing that came down from the Caesar was stamped with his likeness, okay? And so that's how they knew that there was authority. And so when you read this, that he was an exact imprint of God, know this, it's a very common word. It was a very everyday kind of unexceptional term that was applied to Jesus. Simple. Exact imprint of God. The fifth thing is he is the upholder or the sustainer of the universe. Okay, so this was funny. So when I first heard that, I'm like, okay, he upholds the universe, whatever, moving on. Pause, that's like pretty big deal, guys. Like the universe and stuff. The word there that's used is actually it's not just talking about like the solar system. It's talking about everything, time, space, activity, everything involved in the whole cosmos deal, okay? And the cool thing too, do you realize that that's a present tense term? That he says it in the present tense, meaning that this is a continuous action. He is always upholding. Our sweet Becky made this point and I thought it was so beautiful. I hadn't even seen it. She said, you know, out of all those terms in your homework, remember we had that moment where you said, which one of those was like the coolest? I don't think she phrased it like that. But, and, and Becky said, it's this part. That he, not only did he create everything and not only is he an heir of everything and he is the exact imprint of God and all that stuff is all cool. But you know what he does? He holds it together. He holds this whole big thing. The God of order sends his son to hold it together for us. I need it held together, people, right? And that's who Jesus is. The sixth thing that we learn about who Jesus is. Did you notice that number seven? You're gonna see that number a lot in God's word if you haven't studied it before. It's kind of a cool thing that is not a coincidence. It's pretty orderly, pretty planned out. The sixth, the sixth title that he gives Jesus is that he is the Savior. He is our Savior. Again, that's another term like we hear all the time, right? Oh, he's the Savior of the world, blah, blah, blah. Guys, he's the Savior of the world. He's our Savior. And this is what's really cool. Remember who he's talking to. Remember, it's always important to know what it says, what it means, and then... We get to say, well, how's that going to change me? So he's writing to these Hebrews, right? And so you remember what they did? Remember how we kind of talked a little bit about what they were doing all the time in the temple? What were they doing? Sacrifices, right? You know, that was a thing they did over and over. It wasn't like they did the one sacrifice, right? They had this whole system for when and how, what it looked like, what the process was, who was involved. But then when our Savior comes, he is the once and for all perfect, pure sacrifice. No longer do they have to keep doing this daily task of sacrificing and offering to God because God's like, hey guys, it's done. So that was radical, okay? We're, we're like, you know, three verses in and these people were like, what? Okay, to us, we're used to it in Flower Mound, Texas where there's a church on every corner. But to these readers, this might've blown it out for them right here in the first three verses. Don't miss how important this is. The seventh thing that he says about Jesus Christ is that he is the exalted Lord. He is the exalted Lord. Um, my favorite part of this whole thing was that Jesus, what did Jesus do when he got there to the right hand of God? Did y'all notice? He sat down, people. If Jesus can sit down and chill out, you can sit down and chill out. That is the truth. We'll call that a principle. Um, this is what's cool. Remember, every word is, 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 is in there for a reason. It wasn't like we were supposed to just know 
that, um, that Jesus was at the right hand of God. It was that we needed to understand that he sat down at the right hand of God. And you know what that means? That means that he observed the fact that it was finished. He was done. It was over. I love that visual, right, of Jesus going, boom, mic drop, sit down. It's done. He sat down. And listen, this is kind of an interesting little aside that the Hebrew people, again, would have known when there were sacrifices and such going on in the tabernacle or in the temple, there was this whole big deal. And if you've ever studied that before, it's pretty fascinating, but we're not doing it right now. But like there's this curtain and there's this, everything, it's all very particular. But you know what there is not? There is not a seat because the priest doesn't sit down because the priest is never finished. And so the fact that he would point out, that he would say, not only was Jesus the high priest and was he at the right hand of God, but guys, the fact that he sat down, this would have blown their minds. It's finished. So he was the exalted Lord. Seven things we can understand about Jesus. Very simple. We could close the book right now. We're not gonna. Don't get excited. Moving on to verse four, I want to read something to you in verse four before we move on because I feel like it's something that could be easily misunderstood. Um, verse four, so follow along with me. So I'll start in verse three just so it makes a little more sense. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. And after making purification for sins, remember, his sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse four, having become Put an underline under that word. As much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited, it is more excellent than theirs. That word can really make us stumble, right? Because we're like, wait, hold up. He became better than the angel? I don't really understand what that means. I felt like we needed to talk about that for just a quick second. Listen, verse 4 the term having become, I want you to hear this, okay? This is super duper important. So wake up for like a quick second and you go right back to sleep. He was always God. He was always God. But he became the son. Okay? Stay with me. Always God, but became the son. Listen, full sonship, we're talking about son, the son of God, was achieved at the virgin birth. Do you know even John doesn't call him the son of God until he is made flesh? Think about it. He is not the son until he's here, okay? So when you see that word become, having become as much superior to the angels, that's, he was no less God. And, and it was certainly no less God even when he was here on earth because remember, he was fully man, fully God. But what we need to understand here is that when he goes back, when he has done his job, it is finished, he goes back to being fully God at the right hand. Does that make sense? Does that help clarify that verb a little bit? The Greek for the word become there is actually, it shows a change of state, not a change of existence. Listen and hear that again. It shows a change of state, not a change of existence. This is not the moment that, God, that Jesus became God. This is not the moment that he ruled over the angels. That was forever, okay? Lower than the angels in verse 9 of chapter 2. We're going to talk about that again in a minute. It's the same idea. Being lower than the angels was a temporary thing. 
He's eternal as God. He was temporary as the son. I can't say that more because sometimes we pull these, see this is like that moment where we could have pulled that scripture out and not looked at it in the context of what he meant there and we would be like, wait, what? He's lower than the angels and he became, what does that even mean? And so that's why it's so important for us to understand what was happening and what it meant in the context of how the writer wrote it, okay? So, becoming, always God became the son. Okay. The second part of this whole idea that the son is um, better is that he's better than the angels. And you covered a lot of this in your homework. And I know, oh my gosh, guys, we were laughing in, in leader group because we could have spent like six hours and not even got anywhere close to talking about all the angel stuff. I'm going to move through it pretty quickly because um, we want to stay focused on what, um, who Jesus is. But I want you to note a few things. Verses 5 through 14. Verses 5 through 14, um, that's where he really stops and says, okay, so I've said who Jesus is. We've talked about that the whole long ago in these last days, all that stuff, right? And now he goes, okay, guys, here's the real deal. Listen up. This is what I love. This is where we were talking in our group today, and you probably hit this too, that like all of a sudden you realize everything in God's word is woven together to point toward Jesus, isn't it? I mean, this is where your mind gets blown because you're like, okay, so what happens here is the author of Hebrews decides, okay, these people, these, these Hebrew people, whether they're believers or not believers or just on the fence, they know the Hebrew tradition, don't they? They know their Old Testament. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use what they know and they believe to point toward what is true about Jesus Christ. He takes seven verses from the Old Testament and uses those to prove who Jesus is and why he's better. Verses five through 14, I'm not gonna read it all to you, but I do want you to hear this. These Hebrews at the time, important to understand, they were commonly creating their own truth and they were veering dangerously away from God's absolute truth because they started exalting angels to be on level with God. Do we do any of that in our world today? Do we exalt anything up to the level of God and make our truth try to overtake God's truth? Anyone? Yeah, all the time. You may not worship angels, but I promise you, you've got a little G God somewhere in your world that threatens who Jesus Christ is and the throne that he sits on daily. Okay? And so that's what was happening. These Hebrews had kind of, they'd taken a little bit of truth. So like, let me give you an example. The angels have this giant history in the Bible. Did you know, did you know that there are 108 direct references about angels in the Old Testament? I did not know that. There are 165 direct references about angels in the New Testament. God's word has a lot to say about angels. Did you know that there were 10,000 holy angels that participated in giving Moses the law at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 33. Wow. So this, these Hebrews knew. And so to them, they decided, well, I'm going to take a little bit of what I know and I'm going to kind of warp it and sprinkle in some other things that I know. And I'm going to start embellishing the basic teachings about angels. And I'm going to move on to believing that they're more esteemed than they should be. Okay? So that's where we are. That's what the author of Hebrews is walking into. He's saying, 
I recognize that they are not exactly on track with what they believe about angels. So I got to set the stage. I got to get them straight. So he takes what they believe, the Old Testament, seven specific verses and says, all right, you remember where it says this? Well, guess what that means? Okay. So here's what he does. When he takes those seven verses, if you look at verse five, and again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he'll say this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and then he goes on, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Then he goes on to say, he shall be to me a son. And then he goes on to say on verse six, let all God's angels worship him. He moves on and on and on and he's laying on the foundation of truth so that these people can go, oh, maybe what we're walking around believing about angels is maybe not quite true. I want to point out one thing that can be a stumbling block too. In um, verse, uh, excuse me, in verse six, it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says that term firstborn can be kind of weird. Let me explain to you what the understanding is of what that word means. Basically, it means um, in the times that this author was writing this, the firstborn was always the heir, Right? The firstborn was the heir. They understood that. That's tradition they understood. I love this because so often we see that the author of Hebrews recognizes his audience and what they understand, and he talks their language. So in that particular case, when you see firstborn, don't get all weirded out. It's not the same word that we would think today. What it means is that he is the one heir of the throne of God, okay? So moving on, he goes into all these verses, and again, I'm not for the sake of time going to read them all to you, but I want you to recognize this, that each one of these verses proves to these Hebrews that Jesus is better than the angels in his title, in his worship, in his nature, in his existence, and in his destiny. All of these things point back to tell us this is not for angels, this is for who Jesus Christ is. It's important. Wisely, this reader says, hey guys, open up your scripture and I'm gonna show you directly where Jesus Christ is better. And, and they all stand there dumbfounded. Okay, so that's where he goes here. Um, it's something for us to remember as we model this and we think about this, I know we had a couple moments in our group where we were talking about the angels and all that stuff. I want to encourage you, if you're more interested in finding out more about the angels in the Bible, go read it. But here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm going to say this lovingly without my glasses on so I can look in your eyeballs. Um, would you please go see what God's word says about them? Maybe less um, about what people say, authors say, and bloggers say, and Facebook says, and um, Instagram, and memes, and all those things. Maybe more about what God's word says about them. So that we don't become like the Hebrews, right? We don't start spreading things that are not true. We don't start adding on to what God already put in place. Okay? I'll move on. Jesus is better than the angels. The principle for this section is this. Jot this down. That when we don't stay anchored to God's truth, we add, subtract, and author our own false version. When we don't stay anchored to God's truth, we add, subtract, and author our own false version. That's what they were doing when they started trying to understand angels without turning back to the word of God to tell them. So the author of Hebrews tells us who Jesus is. Tells us that he's better than the angels. 
He's blowing their minds. And then in the beginning of, of chapter 2, he issues a warning. Okay? And like I said before, there are five warnings given in the book of Hebrews. This is the first. Remember all the time, and I'm going to say it a million times, I'm sure, every week. There are three groups of people listening. Three groups of people. Some are believers, some aren't. It's important that we take that in because sometimes you're going to hear things that make you wonder. Um, and so this, this particular warning kind of has us, that's like our first moment of going, wait, who's he talking to? Verses one through four go like this. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this down a little bit into a little, some language hopefully we can understand. It says this, verse one, chapter two. Therefore, who loves that word, therefore? I know Becky does. Therefore, therefore, because he just told us all that other stuff, okay? So he's basically saying, hey guys, I told you all that other stuff, so now I'm going to tell you this, okay? That's the Chris version of therefore. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And that's what we're going to talk about here, lest we drift away from it. So what is he talking about? What's the warning there? The warning is that there is some drifting that can occur. You know, when I read this, my first thought was um, a few years ago when I used to do triathlons, we were training for a really big one. Has anybody done a triathlon in open water or anybody done any open water swimming? Congratulations. You're welcome. I wouldn't recommend it. No, it's, it's good. But let me just tell you, this is what I learned because I signed up for this thing and I didn't realize it wasn't going to be in a pool, you know, with like lane ropes and people and stuff. I signed up for this thing and it was going to be a mile and a half like out in the lake of who knows where. And quickly I got a little panic because I'm like, I'm pretty good in the pool where I can stand up if I'm freaking out or grab on the lane rope. But all of a sudden I'm looking at a big wide water and I got to swim out, turn around and come back. I don't know what I'm doing. And so what I learned real quickly is there's this um, technique when you're, when you're doing open water swimming and some of us are better at it than others. I'm not very good at it, but it's called sighting, sighting like sight. And what that means is you take about 10 to 15 strokes because your head's down and then you got to look up and you got to orient, right? Because if you don't, what do you do? You go way crooked guys. And I, let me just say, just hypothetically, as if I had experience in this. If you go way off course, it is such a bummer because you have to swim that much longer to get back on course. It's like one swim I did, it was a very long swim. And I remember, I think I swam twice as long because I didn't sight well. And I kept getting off course, I would drift. And so when I saw this, that was my first thought was, take 10 strokes, sight. Take 10 strokes, sight. You know, because when you're in a pool, you got this cool thing, right? You got, you got a lane rope, you got people, behind you that are kind of motivating you. You got pacers, you know, they'll like pace you when you're swimming, whether you like it or not, because you got to hurry because they'll hit your feet. And so you, you, but when you're out by yourself, like I thought I was going to love it because I'm like, okay, there will be no people around me. I can swim as slow as I want. Nobody's going to bug me. Yeah, it didn't work like that. I got way off course. I drifted off course. I didn't go fast enough. I didn't have people helping me. And it ended up being just a nightmare. Drifting. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about those times when if we don't set our sights on a fixed point, we will drift. Okay? If we don't set our sights on a fixed point, we will drift. And it's a long way back sometimes. Amen? Anybody drifted far and it took a long way to come back? Yeah. No fun. 
And so he's giving a warning very early in this letter. Guys, I want to set you straight right now because I don't want you to drift. As I was thinking through this, I thought, okay, we drift, all right? Um, The thing that was interesting when he talks about this in verses 1, he says, he goes on in verse 2, he says, Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, remember that's what he's saying. He's validating the fact that angels are a real deal. They're like a real thing and it's important and they had things to say and they did awesome things in the Bible. But then he's moving on, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Salvation comes through Jesus. Do we neglect salvation if we are believers? Sometimes. Notice here this word is neglect. It's different than reject. Very important. Some, um, some great theological minds believe here that he's not actually talking to Christians here. He's talking to non-believers because he says, well, why would he say that, that we neglect our salvation? I kind of lean the other way. I kind of think he's talking to his whole audience here because I absolutely, with certainty, while I know that my salvation will never be revoked, I absolutely neglect it at times. Do you? Absolutely. And so for me... And again, that part's open to interpretation. I see it as him saying, we neglect, we don't reject. What does neglecting look like? Quickly, I just thought through a couple of things and I thought, when we neglect the salvation of Jesus Christ, we're drifting off course. And how does that look in our lives today? How does that look in our um, non-Hebrews in 60 AD life today? I thought of a couple things. And no offense if it's you personally, because this was really for me. But these were some things I thought of. I know I'm drifting off course when these things happen. And the first is this, that I have, I'm avoiding pace setters that he's given me. I am swimming out in the open water and I got nobody with me. You know, um, my young life leader when I was in high school, I might have mentioned this before, he's still family to me. And I could cry talking about him. But you know what he did when I was in high school shortly after I accepted Jesus? He drove me crazy. He made me crazy. I avoided him like the plague, guys. Because you know why? I went away to college. And uh, every single time I'd come back, in ta- come back in town, God would do this really cruel thing where I'd run into Don Brown. And it was so awful. Because I would run into him and he'd go, hey, it's good to see you. And he wouldn't ask the questions that everybody else asks. Do you like school? What's it? He would look me in the eyeballs and say, how are your quiet times? And I would immediately hide my face and look away. I mean, I ask him now, I'm like, what did I do? And he goes, oh, what every other high schooler does. But he kept me accountable. He was a pace setter that God said, you know what, whether you like it or not, I'm putting him there. And he's gonna look you in the eyeballs and say, how's your quiet time with the Lord? Are you in God's word right now? And it's funny because I saw him this last summer at a wedding and we were telling this story and I said, I've told it so many times, Don. And he goes, everybody at the table is like, yeah, you'd ask me that too. And then he looked at me and guess what he said? How's your quiet time? (laughs) Pace setters. Are you in a place in life where you're avoiding those people that you know, you know who God's put in? Maybe they dragged you to Bible study. You're welcome. But if you find yourself avoiding those people, you might be drifting off course. The other way that I know that I'm drifting off course with Jesus is when um, I creep back into the comfortable thing. I creep back into the comfortable things. We talked last week about how these Hebrews were really, really, really wanting to go to what was good, what they knew, 
instead of what was better, this new covenant that was weird and new and different. They didn't understand it, right? We do that, don't we? We focus on creeping back into the comfortable because sometimes comfortable, even if it's painful, comfortable is easy. We know how to do that dance, don't we? Another way we drift off course is by hearing and not doing. By hearing and not doing. In James um, 1, 22 through 25, it seems to hit me in the face like a two by four a lot of times because I'm really good at coming to church on Sunday and listening. I'm even really good at taking notes. That's just like a thing. You may be good at that today too, writing things down. But when you walk out of here, is any of this happening in your world? Are you doing God's word or do you just hear it and let it go? My kiddo has a history test today. Don't tell his history teacher. Shelly, where are you? Um, you know, and he is, he is working so hard to know all this history so he's prepared for the test. But you know what, guys? I, I suspect, because I have a 17-year-old son, I suspect that it's probably going to get regurgitated on the test and then forgotten forever. Yeah. Do we do that with God's word? That's not what it's intended to do. In the Psalms, it tells us that we're to meditate on it, right? And that means over and over. God, what do you want me to know? Why do I care about Hebrews 1 and 2? God, I don't understand. Why do I care? I'm going to Target. Why does it matter? Meditate. Talk to him. Think about it. Pray about it. Be doers of the word, not hearers of the word. The next um, indicator that tells me I'm drifting off course is when I'm compromising, when I'm rationalizing, and when I'm ignoring the undercurrents of the world. Anybody? Yeah, I'm not as bad as her, though. I mean, did you see what she posted on Facebook? We rationalize, don't we? We rationalize, we compromise, and we ignore that there is an enemy out there that is actively seeking to steal, kill, and destroy God's people and the testimony that they have to share with the world. And so I know I'm drifting off course when I start buying that. Don't buy that. Another way is... um, I mentioned it before. I'm defining, when I start defining my belief system by books, by bloggers, by commentaries, by authors, by pastors, instead of, hear me, those are wonderful things if they're used in conjunction with truth. But when I start going to find out about angels by looking up the newest titles on Amazon about angels instead of going to the one true source of truth about angels, something's off. Okay, And you know what? You're, you're doing great. Pat yourselves on the back. Seriously, I'm not even joking. You're here, and this is not easy, and what you're doing is not easy. But you're choosing to seek truth before you seek all those other things. When we look at that stuff first, because it's easier, and it's soundbite, it's simple, then we're not seeking what God wants us to do. We're drifting off course. And the last thing is, um, am I relying on the circumstances of my life to determine my joy and my gratitude? Am I relying on circumstances to line up before I go to the throne and said, thank you? There are, there are hard, hard circumstances in this room right now. And when we rely on the rightness in our minds of what those circumstances are to approach the throne in joy and in gratitude, we are off course. Off course. So when we do all these things, we all do them. Amen? We all do them. When we do these things, these are indicators. Like God's so cool like this. It's like when you're hungry and your stomach starts growling. It's like your stomach growling going, hey, hey, you're off course. Get back on course. Sight, 
Focus on the fixed point. That warning demands a response. Let me challenge you. The response, when you hear that warning, that warning, don't drift off course. Let me challenge you with this. Um, Seek community. Seek community. You need people. You don't need yes people. You need truth and love people. Amen? That's what you need. You need godly people who are running the race that you're running. The second thing is we have to daily go to God's word for direction. Everything else is just commentary. Me included. Everything else is just commentary. This is truth. Everything else is just opinions. Thirdly, we have to do God's word. We don't want to just read it or quote it or post it or tattoo it on our arm. We want to live it, right? We want to live it. We want people to look at our lives and go, man, something different. It's God's word. We got to live it. We got to be doers of the word. And lastly, we want to do this. We want to daily, and I I hear you. This is hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for every believer. Daily, we want to go to God in prayer and we want to ask him to keep us aware, keep us on alert, and keep us grounded in his truth, not our made-up truth. We've got to ask it. You know, that's the thing. It's like we forget sometimes that we can approach the throne and go, hey, God, I need you to make me want to study my Bible. I need you to make me want to put on shoes and and go to Bible study. I need you to make me want to be alert and avoid the things that are comfortable. I need you to make me want to not respond to that ugly Facebook post that I so desperately want to respond to. You can ask for those things. Listen, I'm going to move quickly through this last part. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, we hear, oh gosh, I can't move, I'm trying to be a robot. We hear the Hebrews author, he shares the business of salvation. And I want you to know this, I read this and it was hard. Anybody read it and it was hard, right? Yeah, lower than the angels, what, wait, what? Let me just share something with you. My superpower, my secret trick is Bible translations. It's my secret power. There's a thing called BibleGateway.com, and I go there, and I'm like, ah, that did not make sense in the ESV. Let's try another. Let's try another. Let's try. It, use those tools to help you understand. And so for me this week, it was the message. And so I want to read a little bit. I'm going to jump around a bit, but I want you to just listen, okay? You can follow along if you want, but if, if you're better at just listening without reading, just listen. And this is how we're going to wrap up. Verses 5 through 9, he starts in verse 5. He says this. God didn't put the angels in charge of the business of salvation. It's not their job. That's verse 5. Jumping on down to verse 9, he says this. What do we see? What, excuse me, what we do see is Jesus made, not quite as high as the angels, and then through the experience of death, crowned so much higher than any angel with a glory bright with Eden's dawn light. In that death, by God's grace, he fully experienced death in every person's place. Verse 10, it makes good sense that the God who got everything started and keeps everything going now completes the work by making the salvation pioneer perfect through suffering as he leads all these people to glory since the one who saves and those who are saved have a common origin. We are family. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. 
Jesus doesn't hesitate to treat them as family. Jumping down to verse 14. Since the children are made of flesh and blood, that's us, guys. We are the children of the promise of Abraham. That's us. We, those people. Okay? Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death. By embracing death, taking it to himself, he destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. That is us. We cower and we are afraid. Verse 16, it's obvious, of course, that he didn't go to all this trouble for the angels. Didn't go to all the trouble for the angels. They're not part of this family, of this inheritance. They're created, there is a relationship, but they are not a part of this. This is you and me, guys, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It was for the people like us, children of Abraham. That's why he had to enter into every detail of human life. Then when he came before God as the high priest to get rid of people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain and all the testing. I'm gonna finish with this. He was made temporarily to come to this earth to be man, fully man, tempted, yet sinless. We are set free because of it. And he, this Hebrews author, wants these people to understand it too. You are set free, not because of the angels, not because of all the sacrifices and all the sacraments and all the things you do. You are set free because Jesus came and put skin on and moved into the neighborhood and lived and died. He is our high priest. He sits chilling out at the right hand of God because he is done. He was our sacrifice and our rescuer. And without him, we got nothing. It's simple We complicate it. God has spoken. He alone is better. He's your fixed point. He's your high priest and your sacrifice. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, all of these things that the author of Hebrews shares about who you are, we needed to hear today. Um, Forgive us for those times we forget. Um, Lord, go before us. Show us those places that we need you to be our fixed point. We've got to sight well, Lord. This, This life we live is rough water and it's hard. And we're not good at it, to be honest. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus. You didn't just sit up on the throne up in heaven and have this removed thing going on. You came down and had relationship and showed us how to live. And you died when we should have died. Thank you. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name. Amen.